The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, or should it be good day, and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, we are celebrating Australia Day. The UK is the number one export market for Australian wines. We lap them up. So we'll talk to one of the country's top winemakers, Larry Cherubino, the director of winemaking at Robert Oatley, a familiar name for lovers of Australian wines, and also to its brand ambassador, Katie McCauley, uh, to explore what it is we love and where we should explore. Plus, as ever, at the end, we'll have uh, some special recommendations for drinks that won medals for the IWSC, uh, all of them from Australia. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. So this week we're celebrating Australia Day with a show dedicated to its wines and two guests who know the country inside out. Larry Cherubino is Director of Winemaking at Robert Oakley Vineyards, a veteran of Margaret River and the McLaren Vale. He now oversees the winemaking for a brand that was a a real pioneer in making us fall in love with Australian wine decades ago. And also Katie McCauley, who began her career hand-selling Australian wines in a, a wine shop in southwest London before becoming a buyer for Bibendum, uh, amongst other things. Uh, and uh, she's also worked in winemaking in Australia. And she's now brand ambassador for Robert Oakley. Uh, Larry uh, joins us from Western Australia. Um, good day to you, Larry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, Katie, uh, welcome to the drinking hour too. Thank you very much, David. Pleasure to be here. Let's begin uh, with uh, a little bit about uh, you, uh, Larry. Um, tell us um, how you got into winemaking. Uh, well, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. But uh, rather by accident, actually, I, I grew up um, uh, in a farming family and uh, we were dairy farmers, but we also had uh, a small vineyard. And so I was always interested in agriculture and farming. I went off to school, uh, went off to university, and I actually studied business and um, an agribusiness and really decided that I didn't like that. So I sort of had a year off from that, went and worked a vintage and really didn't stop from there. So I sort of got, got the wine bug, so to speak. And I think it, it, within, within two years, I was based in France and worked my way through Italy and around the world over the, over the next 10 or 15 years. So um, I caught it early and, uh, and I've stuck with it ever since. <laughs> Well, I was uh, coincidentally also raised on a dairy farm uh, on the Isle of Wight here in the UK. And um, I have to say, having seen how hard um, dairy farmers worked, um, I ran a mile from the idea of uh, farming uh, myself. So, so, so what, what made you really attracted to the idea of getting sort of onto the land? Uh, look, initially, from, from the winemaking point of view, probably wasn't, it wasn't the, um, it wasn't the wine it's such that I was really interested in it was more, you know, the grape growing and, and the viticultural side of the whole business. And sort of I've come full circle because I actually got involved with the whole process. And these days, you know, I spend probably largely a, a, a fair amount of my time just making sure that what we've got coming into the wineries is, is of the best quality. And, you know, I spend a lot of time in the vineyards. And so 
I started off there, I sort of did a lot in between and I've ended up back, you know, really having a big input into the way we grow our grapes and, and we source our grapes. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. Um, I want to talk to you about Roseworthy as well, because uh, you studied there and um, people who know wine uh, in Australia will absolutely know Roseworthy. But for those who um, don't, uh, I keep hearing about it. I keep talking to people um, who did their, their wine uh, studies there. Um, it, it has an enormous uh, impact on um, Australian winemaking, doesn't it? Well, yeah, look, I mean, Roseworthy really gained uh, a huge amount of traction in the, you know, it's been around for a long time, but certainly in the late 70s and 80s and into the 90s, I mean, Australia was exporting a lot of technical expertise right around the world. And, you know, it had a, it's, it does, and it, ha- and it has a, a, a very good reputation for producing what I would call balanced sort of winemaking and winemakers, where they've got a really good understanding understanding across both disciplines of you know grape growing and winemaking you know the only other place that I would have liked to have studied would have been in in Bordeaux but I didn't speak any French so that was never going to work but certainly um, you know Roseworthy's got a great reputation of producing practical practical winemakers. And Katie let's bring you in here I mentioned that you were um, at uh, the the, the start of your career hand selling um, Australia Australian wines, amongst others, uh, to customers in in Southwest London, um, and uh, I, I, I think that was the uh, late nineteen eighties, was it, Katie? I'm afraid it was. It's all that long time ago, and um, it, this was an independent wine shop. It was my first wine job out of university. I really, I probably knew what Chardonnay was, and that was about it. But it was a great um, learning curve for me because we tasted wine all the time, and the the buyer at the time was a, a chap called um, James Rogers, who was fantastic taster, very respected by the press. But he he was slightly iconoclastic in that he taught us to not look at the label, look at the taste. If you like it, how would you sell it and how much would you be able to sell it for? And he gave us, me and a friend, um, journalist Matthew Dukes now, um, great confidence to just look at what's in the bottle. So that then, he had a great affinity for Australian wine. And that was just when Australian wine was beginning to be even heard about. So we probably had 25 Australian wines in our shop. And um, ironically, one of them was Rosemount Roxburgh, which obviously was the Oatley family winery at the time. I think it was 14.99 and we would sell on a Saturday, 10 cases of that, no problem. But I will um, preface that by the fact that in the late 80s it was the late 80s people were drinking krug at lunchtime and came in with wads of cash and it was boom time so we were were very lucky because there was a great enthusiasm to not only buy the old classics but to experiment and we did tastings every single saturday so customers could actually just try for themselves so it was it was really brilliant actually sounds like a proper wine shop and you were you were selling wine alongside uh matthew jukes did you say at that time yes that's right we we were basically well selling what we were shopkeepers basically uh we had to work every saturday sunday sunday mornings we did every second sunday we unloaded the the 300 cases single-handedly every week from the lorry um you know it was just we were working in the shop but it was in terms of learning it was um really um the best 
branding. And as Larry said, I ne- I've never looked back from that job. I mean, it was literally an experiment. I was told at university with an English degree, I should be a teacher or a journalist. And um, I didn't think I was good enough for the latter. And I didn't want to be a teacher. So, <laughs> so I plumped for wine. <laughs> Well, very good. Good choice. And uh, it's worth the context for those um, a a, a little uh, younger, I suppose. Um, It's worth pointing out, isn't it, that uh, in the in the 80s, uh, that was really when Australian wine in the UK took off. I remember I I grew up um, in a family that had wine on special occasions and and we generally had German wine. Um, Mm. And I remember being in my teens and one of our guests, uh, arriving with a and plonking down a bottle I don't know what it was of but of Australian Chardonnay and, and and my aunt who brought me up a farmer's wife saying wine from Australia as if that was some kind of um, miracle at the time that's absolutely right I mean I I, I slightly had the same uh, do you remember what it tasted like when you did you have a taste of it or were you too young I, I'm not sure I was allowed at that uh, right. stage uh, but I suspect uh, it was probably of the the bigger style of, of Chardonnay at the, at the time, I would imagine. Exactly. Well, my first experience was literally, I can remember it, sitting in the shop on a kind of 6.30 in the evening. Um, I'm sure we weren't supposed to drink on the job, but we were just tasting, of course. And I had, um, uh, it was a de Bortley Chardonnay, fat and buttery. But I remember just going, wow, because in those days, um, you know, a lot of the French wines were actually quite lean. You know, Chablis was pretty kind of edgy. Actually, some of the less expensive wines weren't that well made, to be fair. Um, Australia has brought in a lot of the technological ad- advantages of cleaner wine. But this wine, and I think this this was what captured the imagination of everyone, was this cliched sunshine in a bottle, um, but also very accessible flavours, fruity flavours, clean wine, you know, good prices. And the labels were really clear instead of having some, you know, no no great varieties it was just the the maker the variety and the region and the vintage and so it was it, it started demystifying wine and it was it was just a pleasure i think it gave people a, a link to wine that they hadn't previously had and this is a good point uh, larry to bring in uh, bob oakley himself because Obviously, his name is uh, is the brand. Um, sadly, um, as of 2016, no longer with us. But um, Bob Oakley, uh, Larry, had a, a really massive impact on exports of Australian wine, didn't he? Uh, I mean, it was huge. And I mean, again, and um, particularly in this country, a lot of the, the younger winemakers probably don't fully appreciate exactly what had happened at that time in terms of the explosion of Chardonnay and that style and what it actually did for Australian wine. Most people think that Shiraz probably made Australia's name, but it was actually Chardonnay. Bob had a very, you know, that it just had to taste good. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it, it, it was huge. Um, and, and I wish more people appreciated the fact that, you know, he left such a mark. And what did he um, actually do then that uh, allowed um, the the world to kind of wake up to, um, to to those Australian wines. What did people like him, those early pioneers, do? They wore out a lot of shoe leather. They they again, you know, Katie brought up the fact that you know there was a demystifying of you know we de you know Australia had the reputation of demystifying wine, and you know it was all about personalities getting out there and meeting people and talking to people and talking to the gatekeepers and really the ground, you know, from the ground up, you know, getting out there and physically turning up 
and it, and you know talking about your product. And I think that's what Australia did exceptionally well during those times was just really education at you know the grassroots level. On that subject, no, just um, because Bob had previously had another career um, in coffee, um, and when he was fifteen, his dad said, you better get a job because everyone's going to come back from the war and the, the ones who are left and are going to take all the jobs. So he got this job with this trading company. And then after the war ended, coffee started to become very popular. Anyway, fast forward, um, he ended up buying the coffee arm of that company. But what he learned, this is Sandy told me all of this, um, was dealing with growers, taking a, a, you know, working out how to grow a quality product and then learning how to sell it and then go, you know, market it and then sell it. So package it and then go around the world and selling it. So I think he then applied all of those skills to his wine business. And as Larry said, um, and Chris Hancock is a great friend of the Oatley's worked with them for 50 years, said they spent six months of the year on airplanes to the US or the UK. I think they had a, they basically had um, a number of rooms at the, some smart hotel, which wasn't as expensive as it is now, um, where they just had, you know, 100 nights a year because they had to be here, you know, a lot of the time talking to people and telling them what we're doing, telling them about the country and and most of all, putting wine in their glasses and hoping they enjoyed it. And Larry, uh, Katie mentioned uh, Sandy there, uh, Bob's son. Uh, he's still very much involved in the running of uh, Robert Oakley to this day, isn't he? Yeah, very much so. He's, you know, he's, um, you know, he, he loves the wine business. He actually spent a huge amount of his youth um, based in their winery in New South Wales, um, working in just about every part of the business. So, you know, he has a, a really, really intimate understanding of the wine business and particularly, you know, how th- their previous business was put together. And certainly in a lot of respects, I don't think, particularly the way the business is run, um, that there's great differences in between, between the approaches of, you know, trying to take, um, you know, wine to the market and essentially making sure that we're making delicious wine. I think that's that's the most important thing and that's certainly that's been carried on from, from you know, Bob to Sandy and certainly we, we're all on the same page. And Larry, when you're making delicious wine, uh, tell us where you're making it. Uh, introduce us to the, the modern day Robert Oatley operation. Back in 2006, 2007, when, when the family were looking at where they were going to base their wine business, they virtually said, look, we need to take in the best of Australia. Part of that is we make wine in Western Australia and in the various regions of WA, um, out of McLaren Vale, the Barossa Valley, the Yarra Valley and, and New South Wales. So um, it sounds really complicated, but uh, what we're looking for out of all of the regions is the best expression and when you don't have to try too hard and you know particularly if you talk to older farmers if you've really got to try really hard to do something in a particular region then possibly it's something that you might not want to be doing and so you know it's the path of least resistance to some of these things so hence uh, Margaret River Chardonnay and you know for, for my money it's probably one of the best places in the southern hemisphere to grow Chardonnay so it's of no surprise that we're making Chardonnay out of Margaret River and Cabernet. So very, very much that's what the business is about. It's not a singular region growing lots of different varieties. It's about um, the whole palette of Australia and what 
those regions within Australia does best. And you know uh, Western Australia very well. Um, it's where you're speaking to us from today. Uh, you've also worked, as I mentioned in the introduction, in uh, the McLaren Vale uh, uh, as well. Um, let's zoom in on, uh, on Western Australia and Margaret River particularly, because um, I was talking to a regular guest um, on this uh, programme uh, last week, Freddie Bulmer, um, the uh, Wine Society buyer for Australia. And it just happened, uh, no, no knowledge of this conversation that we were going to have this week at that point. I was raving spontaneously about Margaret River. I keep discovering these wines from Margaret River and I keep thinking, wow, and I've never been to Margaret River. Um, and so I don't feel I kind of I've seen it or know much about it yet. But um, incredible uh, wines, incredible consistency, approachability, um, fruit profile, quality, um, length and depth, uh, complexity, you name it. Um, so tell us a bit about, um, for those who, uh, who've who not been there and who don't know it, tell us about Margaret River. Well, so, well obviously Margaret River's um, located in southern the southwestern corner of Western Australia. To put Western Australia, well, that whole region, if you include Margaret River and the Great Southern, which is primarily all the grape growing regions and the geograph and everything, it's probably one and a half times the size of Belgium in terms of, a reg in terms of the, the region um, together. You know, Western Australia is bigger than Texas. I think the UK fits into Western Australia about 11 times. <laughs> it's a big, big state. Um, but it's that southern corner um, that verges on the Indian Ocean and the Southern Ocean, which makes Margaret River really quite a unique uh, grape-growing environment. It's 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 maritime. It's primarily a maritime, and uh, all the grape growing and viticulture is sort of is focused um, about ten, you know, zero to you know twenty k's inland from the coast, along that um, along that uh, stretch of Margaret River. It's 100 kilometres long by about 10 kilometres wide, which is roughly the area is the size of Bordeaux in terms of a region, but it's, you know, it's probably only 10% or 5% planted. There's just not a lot of vineyard. Uh, the industry is relatively small by South Australian standards or McLaren Vale standards, but it has, it produces, you know, 5% of, Austra less than 5% of Australia's wine as, you know, the whole state, but it's uh, producing greater than 50% of the premium wine coming out of this country. So it's got a great reputation um, alongside Margaret River in terms of excitement, it's, it's there. But we occupy a very specific part of the market because we're a long way away from anywhere. We don't have the economies, you know, importantly, there's just not, we don't have an, a, a massive overabundance of production. And in the last five years, Margaret River Chardonnay has just shot to, you know, another level um you know people are really really focusing on it we've really niche carved out a really definitive style in this country it's got a lovely the chardonnay that you refer to i was tasting a, a couple of your um chardonnays last night including um uh, finisterre which will be uh, familiar to um uh, customers uh, in the uk because it's uh, um, uh, quite widely available and, and very well priced for the, the quality uh, in the bottle. Um, tell us about um, why Chardonnay does so well uh, in Margaret River. Uh, look, again, it, it gets back to um, that maritime climate. So you have moderate, you know, in the peak of summer, you'll have, you know, temperatures of low to mid 30s, and that's about as hot as it can get. You do have, obviously, we can have peaks of temperature. But by 10 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock at night, um, you know, we're back down to well below 20s in the peak of summer. 
and even cooler than that, depending on how far south you are. So you tend to get these really great expressions of Chardonnay flavour, but they've got the acidity to, to match up with that. So you, you're getting great flavour at moderate, moderate to low alcohol levels, but matched with really good, clean, crisp acidity. And, um, you know, Chardonnay, Chardonnay must have flavour and it must have acidity. And, you know, when you get the two working well together, it's just a, it's such a fantastic combination. It's why I like to drink it. You know, importantly, and, and, and what I've seen happen around the world is that Australia is a dry environment. It's a dry climate. It's relatively, we get re moderately high rainfall in Margaret River, but we've always been, been dealing with really dry, you know, growing seasons, particularly around harvest. We're really good at managing that. Um, our viticulture has been adapted to that. And and as a, as a consequence, I think we've been really consistent in, in being able to ride that through a year in and year out, depending on, you know, whether we have a wet season or dry season. We're, we're very good viticulturally at, you know, maintaining a particular fruit profile and style. You know, I could get into, you know, climate change and I could get into, you know, what I see happening in other parts of Europe, particularly with Chardonnay. And, you know, in warmer years, I just see um, probably not what I normally would expect to see out of some of these regions because we're much better and have adapted over a long period of time dealing with, you know, warmer climates. I was struck uh, tasting your uh, Chardonnay wines uh, by the kind of teasing restraint uh, relative to some other um, Australian Chardonnays I, I can think about in the same sort of price bracket. Um, uh, so, so are you, is that a very, uh, well, firstly, is that a fair observation? And, and secondly, um, is that a, um, a very deliberate approach in terms of the way you, you make the wines? Yeah, look, I, I really like, and I, that teasing restraint, that's a, that's a really nice way of putting it. And I think it sort of relates to what I said earlier about being able to manage, you know, we don't want for sunshine, we don't want for maturity and sugar, we don't want for any of that. And what we tend to do is we actually have to, you know, we got to work backwards to make sure that we pick at exactly the right time where we get that balance of acidity and balance of flavour in the field. You know, once we get those wines into the wine, you know, those juices and those grapes into the winery, you know, there's not a lot of exploitation or things going on to really work up to a style. We've more or less got it and we can sort of maintain that. And and that's what I like doing. You know, I, I really I really like wines that sort of sit on that edge of having, you know, great flavour and great texture and, and great acidity without without being, you know, the volume turned up too loud because you tire of that um, very quickly. And what about oak? Because it's very nicely integrated. Um, it's very much there. Uh, like most wine lovers, I suppose I have a, a love-hate relationship with oak in that I absolutely adore it, especially with Chardonnay when it's done properly. And of course, it can uh, when it's when it's not or when there's too much of it, it really does get in the way. Um, again, the teasing yeah. restraint is is there. I'm glad you like that, those words. Um, uh, well, tell me about the way you work with oak. Uh, we, I love it. I love oak, and I think um, uh, a lot of it, a lot of the, a lot of the approach to you know oak is changing. It's really obviously it's very expensive uh, to use it, and depending on where the wine sits, but you know it's a really important part of our winemaking style. I think for us, um, sometimes you spend that much time and energy and money on 
different keepers that you almost can't see it. And in fact, the more the more money, it's like that teasing restraint. You know, the the, the best oak from the best uh, forests is almost it's almost invisible. Um, and that's that's more or less how we look at oak. And you know, some you know uh, you know some of our best wines they do have a fairly large percentage of new oak. But again, we're really, really selective about what that oak is doing to the wine, and it's not about um, it's not about flavour impact, and it's not necessarily about um, the way the wine smells. It's all about the texture that that oak provides to the wine. And Katie, uh, let's bring you in here because in the time that you've been uh, working uh, with. Uh, uh, these these wines, not just the Robert Oakley wines, but uh, uh, wines from Australia more generally, um, you must have seen the relationship with oak evolve quite significantly. Definitely. I mean, to Larry's point, um, or going back to my original Chardonnay that I first tasted in 1987, um, you know, that was full on. Um, I suspect it would have been um, very new American oak. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Larry, I don't even know if they had oak chips in those days. Um, but uh, I think over the years, and this actually is 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 um, probably the mantra for the whole of the Australian wine industry, is over the last 30 years, everything has got more refined. So understanding of your vineyard site, your soil, understanding of grape clones, understanding of oak and how to use it. I think the... Um, Larry's generation, the younger generation of um, winemakers have traveled the world and see how other people use oak and you know, look to other coopers, look to other forests. Um, so I think everything has gone from quite full on in those days, which was actually the way to burst into a market. And then over the next 30 years, it's been about refining every single thing that you do. And so that you get to a point of elegance and complexity and structure in the wines as a broad brush generalization we've we've also had to become very um conscious about using it because um you know some of these chardonnays that we're making particularly at the pointy end they offer exceptional value in terms of their counterparts from other parts of the world but um you know you know in relative terms we haven't been around for a long time and so we've got to balance out, you know, cost versus, you know, <laughs> against all of those things. So, it, you know, it's, um, it's a tricky thing, but um, uh, I, think, I think we do a good job of it. And let's move to the reds because uh, uh, the, uh, the style of, of, uh, of, of Cabernet Sauvignon, um, this is the thing when I was talking about this um, kind of revelation as I've, uh, as I've um, discovered uh, Margaret River wines and, and, and loved them, um, and it's, it's just had me wanting to explore, to, to, to discover more. Um, tell us about uh, why um, Cabernet Sauvignon um, does uh, so well in Margaret River, Larry. <laughs> I mean, it, it is ridiculous that you've got Cabernet growing alongside of Chardonnay, and they both have a very good reputation. But again, I, it sort of gets back to that uh, we don't want for you know ideal conditions and we've got such a great growing environment and cabernet is one of those varieties where if it's too hot it loses all of its nuance and if it's too cold it really struggles to get over the line so um you know when you know we're picking chardonnay in you know the middle to late to maybe early march 
and we still have six weeks to ripen Cabernet in relatively conditions that where there's no rain and there's just beautiful autumnal conditions, you know, where you have nighttime temperatures of, you know, you know, 12 to 15 degrees Celsius uh, and, and, you know, daytime temperatures in the mid, 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 mid twenties and they're long drawn out. And so it just gives Cabernet that time on the vine. And, you know, it's not unheard of to pick Cabernet unlike, you know, parts of Hawke's Bay and New Zealand, you know, in early May or in late April um, after Easter. And they just get that time on the vine uninterrupted by rain and to really, really come together. So they'll certainly accumulate the sugar when when we want them to, but it's all about them sitting there and hanging. So you just end up with those beautif beautifully sort of complex, fine tannins um, that you see, that, that we want to see. So it's, you know, we're lucky. We've got the right climate. I was going to ask you about the, the tannins um, in the wines, in the Cabernets, because they're, um, they, they, they're so polished, so smooth, um, so kind of silky. Um, and uh, and, th and this, I mean, applies in your wines and it, it absolutely applies in, in, in kind of rival wines I've tasted from Margaret River of a, of a, of a, of a, of a peer quality. Um, so in terms of the tannins, how, is, that, is that happening? Is that nature um, or, or, or is this um, kind of winery stuff? Look, I, I might just sort of answer that. At the moment, there's two, there's two sort of, um, there's, there's something that's very fashionable about at the moment and there's a lot of Cabernet that almost appears not to have any tannin at all. They're just, they're lovely expressions, bright, blackberry. They're more or less, some of those wines are built on a profile of acidity rather than, they're more about acid than they are about tannin. And I, and I really like tannin. And I think, you know, wines that have the right sort of level of extraction over time um, in bottle, they just get really interesting and really complex. And so along, alongside of the development of the fruit. So probably the way we manage tannin and what we do with tannin, we have fairly long maceration periods and I would probably, you know, line them up with, you know, fairly, you know, all of my training was obviously in, in Europe and in Italy in, and Italy. And so probably in some respects, um, our wines are structured a lot like, you know, wines out of Bordeaux and, wine, and, and wines out of Piedmont. We love tannin. And so we have these long periods, um, we, we press off quite late. And so we want to see a really good resolution and development of those tannins before they leave their skins rather than pressing them off and then using other things to try and bring about soft, softness and resolve. So we've got a fairly traditional approach, which in some ways, you know, is not what is the accepted and it's not certainly not in style in Australia at the moment because Everything's about being incredibly soft and almost tannin. Some, some schools of thought where the wines have too much tannin, but um, it's all about balance. So it, it is a, it is it is purposeful. <laughs> right. Well, they're they're absolutely there. Those tannins. They're just they're just very nicely uh, managed and, and and polished. I imagine you're there with your you know your your metaphorical duster. Finisterre wines. Let's talk about those because that's the um, uh, the, the the top flight of of uh, what I was fortunate enough to be um, uh, tasting uh, last night ahead of this interview purely for uh, research purposes, obviously. And uh, tell me where the the, the uh, what you're seeking to achieve with this um, Finisterre brand, and 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 tell me a bit about the wines. Well, so obviously um, Finisterre, they're they're more 
single vineyard or sub-regional, sub-regional parts of Margaret River. So, for example, Finisterre Cabernet would come out of an area of Margaret River called Willyabrup, and that's sort of considered to be um, the real sort of golden triangle, as it were, of for Margaret River Cabernet. And and so, you know, from a from that point of view, that the, they do have a particular um, profile, and I would classify Finisterre Cabernet as being that real orange chocolate um, when it comes from Willie Abrup and Margaret River. But more importantly, those wines do get a considerable amount of time on skin. They've got to be what from what we deem to be old vines. And that has they, you know, to for us to be able to do the things that we do to them in the winery as far as we don't do, we don't crush, everything goes over a sorting table. We end up with just lots of whole berries in the tank and, and, and they could be on skins for four to six weeks. And we need vineyards of a certain, you know, quality level to be able to do that, to get that sort of end sort of tannin profile that we're looking for. And we want wines that, you know, three, four, five years down the track, they are really still bright. They still are really bright in bottle, but they, they're getting a level of tannin development that's adding to a lot of that sort of secondary Cabernet character that I really find attractive. That's what Cabernet is about. When those tannins start to evolve in bottle, and you're getting all of those secondary, you know, earthy, dusty um, characteristics coming from Cabernet, and that, I love Cabernet like that. And that's what we're trying to achieve with Cab, Cab out of out of that area. Oh, and then obviously with Chardonnay, um, again, we're, you know, they've got to be, you know, older vines. You know, generally from a from a cropping point of view, they're fairly fairly low crops. There's not a, they don't we can't really compare cropping levels or extraction. Per, per hectare here because we've got different planting densities um, over in Western Australia. We, the vineyards are quite, you know, old-fashioned in some respects because um, we've got higher densities. But what we're looking for um, is we, we hand-pick those. They generally, they go they get pressed straight to barrel, so it's really cloudy juice. Um, and you'd think that the wines would be have a lot more reduction than they would, but we're, we're, we, we're starting off with huge amounts of fruit. From a malolactic point of view, um, we would taste any given batch and maybe let a few barrels go through. Um, there's no more than 10% malo in those wines because we want to retain that sort of balance between, you know, really good complexity, good fruit, and sort of that softening complexity that you get from malo. So, you know, you know, that's, you know, we're trying to make, you know, we're trying to make Grand Cru white burgundy out of Margaret River. That's not that we're trying to copy it, but that in terms of the approach, um, we're pretty fastidious about how we grow it and how we process it, and but there's a simplicity in that at the same time. And they would generally go to really high quality cooperage, um, varying from you know 200 litres to even 1,000 litre fudras we're using now for our top Chardonnays. You mentioned uh, mallow there, malolactic fermentation. And I know uh, yeah. one of the wines uh, I was trying last night, the Signature Series, I think, uh, was uh, did, didn't have, didn't go through uh, malolactic uh, fermentation. Um, for those, um, uh, we don't tend to get terribly technical on the drinking hour. No, but, I'm sorry. Uh, this is a re- <laughs> no, no, no. This is good. This is a good point. Uh, explain in in kind of to a wine lover who's not a wine maker, yeah. um, who hasn't done a WSET exam or whatever. Yeah. Um, just explain what malolactic fermentation is and the impact okay. it has on a wine, if you could. Okay. Obviously, obviously, you have the conversion of sugar to al- alcohol, so that's um, yeast fermentation. Malolactic fermentation is where you have there's a there's a there's an acidity in wine called malic acid, and there's a bacteria 
that consume that malic acid and turn it from malic into into it. It, they, they, it just it's a deacidifying. Um, you know, the, the the bacteria consume the acid and make the wine softer, buttery. The byproducts are butter um, and and a general softness because you're losing acidity. And that's it. It, it just these these bacteria are chewing up acid and making the wine softer and and they're leaving behind a few other compounds that really add to to the complexity of the wine. It's, so when you, you know, don't do mallow, you're you're basically wanting to preserve that acidity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, we find that a little bit is always adds just that, you know, we don't use a lot depending on the season. In maybe Finisterre Chardonnay in 2019, we had a little bit there because it was a cooler year. But even a, even the smallest amount just gives you. It's just another little little ingredient in the uh, on the spice rack. It just adds the complexity of the wine. Great. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk briefly about your Riesling as well, because I'm a, a lover of Australian Riesling, but I tend to think uh, uh, Clare Valley, uh, Eden Valley. Um, and uh, I was quite surprised. I don't think I've ever had one that's been uh, billed as a, a great Southern um, Riesling before. Is this a, um, forgive my my uh, ignorance here, but is, is this a relatively new thing? Well, in the scheme of things, yes, but this Riesling um, that, that's going into this particular wine. has been in the ground since 1967, 68. Oh, wow. Okay. So Riesling's had it. Yeah. And, and so, so this particular region, uh, Franklin river is about two and a half hours south and it sits about 50 kilometers inland. So on a, on a, on a latitude basis, it's on exactly the same latitude as Clare Valley. Uh, it's much closer to the ocean um, and it's a real continental climate so this particular region like the Clare it loves Malbec it loves Shiraz it loves Riesling and so um, it's a really gentle it's really gentle you get that big shift between day and night temperatures and you just get this amazing sort of lime juice uh, lemon rind uh, thread running through all the wines it's and it's it's got a you know, a really good history in Western Australia. Um, not not so much outside of that. I've been making Riesling from there for a, for a long time. And um, it's as good as any region. Um, in fact, you know, particularly in the last 10 years, it's really gained a lot of tra traction amongst Riesling lovers in this country. It's a lovely wine, really bursting with uh, sort of uh, lime character, as you say. And, and actually, I just looked it up. It's, you know, it's... Uh, it's 13 quid a bottle at the fair and wine cellar. So yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. very, very good value as well. Um, actually, uh, Katie, I'll, I'll say this rather than you saying it because um, I, I, it's easier for me to say it. They're very good value. You get a lot of wine for your money uh, with uh, the, these particular wines. Um, I think that is uh, Larry's skill and uh, the grower's skill who he keeps an eye on um, and the Oatleys trusting in Larry, but you're right. Um, I did a Shiraz tasting in in uh, lockdown last January um, with producers from all over the world. Larry couldn't be there because the time was too tricky. And um, the final comment came from Jancis, and she just said those Oatly wines look incredibly good value. Um, I met Larry in 2003. We were both in different jobs. He was working for a big Australian co company, and he showed me their range, which was actually about a hundred wines. Correct me if I'm wrong, Larry. And um, 
I they were in those days from three ninety nine up to about hundred pounds, and I tasted the lot. I've done this a lot with as a obviously as a buyer. That's what you do, and um, I there was only about two wines that I questioned why they were actually in the range, um, and I think it's that ability to make you know Bob Oakley's mantra is you know make something nice to drink, but obviously we've all got cost parameters. Um, you know we've only got so much in our back pocket to spend on wine, so it's about making the best wine for that money. And I'm, you know, I'm thrilled with those signature wines. Um, I mean, they're still comparatively, we're, we're apparently in the super premium at signature level. Um, and I think um, one of the points, you know, we have great sales of Australian wine. I spent all my time talking about signature or Finisterre or Pennant, which is our very kind of teensy weensy volumes at, at about 40 pounds a bottle. Um, I spent all my time talking about these wines to show that if you've got, if you can spend over ten pounds, you will get so much more in the bottle. Um, and I think Signature certainly represents that. Um, and just on the Riesling, um, I was just tasting it with some salesmen, a great distributor here in the UK at last week. One of them was quite new, and I mean they just were wowed by that Riesling. Um, it's sometimes hard to sell, but they're immediately going to show it to a really nice restaurant group. Um, and it's a slightly boring subject, but I think what's amazing about that wine is that um, it's got so much flavour, and yet it always comes in under 12% alcohol, which I never thought I'd find myself talking about alcohol in wine. But um, as yeah. I see the, the French wines sadly creeping up big time um, in Burgundy, Burgundy tastings last week, all 13 and a half, 14, you know, not their fault, but um, I think that's for wine by the glass, that Riesling is an absolute winner. Yeah. Uh, Larry, on alcohol, um, is this something you're um, having to think about a lot more these days? You've been making wine quite a while now. Oh, look, I, I think I spoke about it earlier. I didn't want to name any region, but um, Katie brought up the fact that, you know, Burgundy, um, Chablis, uh, white burgundy um, at some levels the alcohols are creeping up or um, they don't have the acidity and and i think uh, as i said earlier we we've always been dealing with lots of sunlight and relatively cool but dry conditions and so we're really good at managing alcohol and sugar and and making sure that we're using everything at our disposal to ensure that we're ending up with balanced balanced uh, fruit hitting the wineries and and then as a consequence making sure the wines are balanced and uh, and we're good at we're, we're just really that's one of australia's really great skills when we don't have enough fruit we can work out how to tease that out in terms of you know difficult vintages but when we we don't want too much we know how to wind it back and you know we've always been conscious of making sure that um, we manage our alcohols i think even the margaret river cabernets they're all you know probably in that you know, they're all, there's nothing there that sort of, you know, screams that it's, you know, the dragon's breath, for want of a better word, being hot and alcohol. And, you know, that's, that's one of our great skills that we can just manage that. And, um, you know, it's, it's becoming difficult. You know, I think um, particularly your market's always been on it, hot on our heels about it. And, um, you know, we're, we're very conscious of it. Well, it's, uh, it's, yeah, as you said, Katie, it's a, an issue that wasn't perhaps talked about in the same way even a decade ago, but it, but it sure is uh, now. Um, just um, to, to, to round off, um, 
uh, we're uh, marking Australia Day, which is, has just um, sort of been and gone. And ordinarily, uh, by now, there'd have been a um, the big UK trade tasting, uh, which is normally pegged to Australia Day. It's been knocked back a bit because of COVID um, this year. It's um, been delayed by a, a couple of months. But um, I'm always struck by how many people uh, making wine who are very busy, um, who have big jobs at home, um, schlep right the way across the world um, to London on a January day in London. Not a good time to visit London for weather. Um, and uh, and especially when it's sunny at home as well and warm. Um, uh, I'm always amazed that people are prepared to do that. Um, Larry, uh, you talked about um, the, uh, the wearing out the leather on the uh, soles of their shoes um, back in the days of the pioneers. Um, why is the UK so sort of um, coveted, if you like, by Australian uh, wine producers. It's the fatherland. I don't know. I, I mean, you know, or the motherland. But I, I guess you know we're so culturally aligned. We we laugh at the same stuff sometimes at each other. You know, it's just you know to travel around the world and be somewhere that's so familiar is is quite amazing. And so you know, it's m one of my favourite places to visit anywhere. I'll I'll go to you know. I'll, I'll, I'll come to London any time of the year. It doesn't but rain, hail or shine. I love it. And I think um, we all feel the same way about it. And um, traditionally, we've been trading with one another since day dot. So uh, it's all about relationships. And um, I've got some great friends there. I've, you know, I've been in and out of the country the first time since I was about 18 that, I ha that, that I've missed visiting in two years in succession and I actually miss it and I think mm. we all feel the same way yeah absolutely um uh what about you Katie um tell us about why you think uh you know the the UK sort of appears to be so significant for Australia in in wine terms well I think it's going back to those days and um you know we talked about the small wine shop I worked in and then uh worked for Oddbin's um in 1992, I got sent on the wine flight of a lifetime. It's hard job it was. Um, 110 of us, journalists and trade from independents to supermarkets. It was the first big trip. Um, the Oatleys were involved in their previous um, business, Rosemount, and backed everyone after that. This, this, that was a pivotal point to get. I think every one of those people that went on that trip will still be working with Australian wine in some form, some more significant than others. And I think it's that um, that relationship between us both. I think it's the, we did tons of Obbin's wine fairs where, hey presto, we suddenly invited winemakers over to meet customers. So we'd have all the kind of legends of the industry in those days, like Brian Crozer and James Halliday and Tony Jordan standing behind tables pouring wine. Um, I think it's the Aussies ability to get their hands dirty um, I think people like their irreverence. Um, I think people like the way they explain things and they've got great stories and they'll work hard and play hard. Very important. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's we like that. Um, <laughs> listen, we, we could talk for hours, but we have talked for an hour. So um, thank you very much, uh, Larry and Katie. It has been fascinating. Really lovely chat. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for talking to, to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much, thank David. So much. Thank you. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition.
using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. So as promised to round off uh, this special Australia Day edition of The Drinking Hour, a selection of medal winners at the IWSC, all of them getting honours in 2021. And we start with a gold medal winner that was also awarded a prestigious trophy. If it was the Chelsea Flower Show, this would be best in show, I suppose. Uh, Debotoli Dean Vat 5 Botrytis Semillon 2018. A sweet wine, as the name suggests, with more than 200 grams per litre of residual sugar, all of it uh, exquisitely balanced by the acidity. I recall tasting this after the trophy judging had taken place and the winners were revealed to us, and it's a sensational wine. Australia, of course, has a rich history of producing top-notch sweet wines. Next, here's a gold from the Barossa, famous, of course, for its uh, Shiraz, Peter Lehman Masters, Eight Songs, Barossa Valley Shiraz 2019, was awarded 95 points, earning it a gold medal. The Masters series from Peter Lehman is a celebration of a personal event that's had an impact on him in his life. Eight Songs for a Mad King was one of his favourite performances at the Barossa Music Festival. Of this wine, the judges said... Elegant and perfumed nose with lovely intense plum notes. The palate gives us some dusty notes with vibrant lavender and violets. Good overall balance and a Moorish character that's delicious. Good concentration of full-bodied fruit and structured tannins. Next, a single vineyard wine from Wins, awarded a high silver with 93 points. Uh, Wins Kunawara Estate Harold Single Vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon 2018. The Harold Vineyard was uh, planted in 1971 on the celebrated Terra Rosta soils of Kunawara. The judges said of this, restrained with savoury earth and cedar notes, sitting atop the black and red fruits. Serious wine with texture and harmony to the long finish. And uh, if you're interested in uh, those Terra Rosa soils, uh, then hopefully we'll be speaking to that wine's creator, Sue Hodder, Wynn's co-chief winemaker with Sarah Pidgeon, on the drinking hour very soon. And next, a gin, Sepplesfield Road Distillers 2020 Barossa Shiraz Gin, a gold medal winner with 96 points, produced by macerating Barossa Shiraz grapes in the award-winning uh, house gin that they produce. Um, if you haven't had one of these uh, Shiraz gins, they're well worth trying. Uh, the judges said, richly pigmented with peppery spices, the fruit adds sweetness to the palate, and the subtle undertones of botanicals are very well balanced and integrated, bold and expertly executed. And a whiskey, Lark Distillery, Chinotto Cask Release Whiskey, a gold medal winner from Tasmania, if you don't know Chinotto or Chinotto, it should be, I suppose, it's an Italian soft drink uh, produced using uh, bitter citrus and spices. It's a bit like a, a kind of posh cola, uh, but with more bitterness. Uh, it's a great idea to fuse it with whiskey. I'm intrigued. Uh, the judges said of this, gentle peat notes layer over a soft vanilla heart. The palate displays a lovely balance between fruit and nut characteristics, supported by a delightful backbone of sweet oak. A harmonious combination of flavours and aromas. This is a fabulous single malt. And finally, a zero alcohol option as we round off dry January. Uh, Liars Aperitif Rosso scored a gold medal and 95 points in the 2021 judging process. Liars are great innovators with uh, 
zero alcohol uh, drinks, um, the best really, or among the best. Uh, the judges said of this, with a lovely tart taste of blood orange and candied fruit, cola cubes and jelly beans, a mildly sweet with balanced palate with a long finish. This works well with both tonic and soda. And that is it. Uh, that was our long finish uh, for this edition of the Drinking Hour dedicated to uh, Australia Day. My thanks to Larry and to Katie for a great chat. Thank you to you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, or you can follow me. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. If you like what you hear, do please give us a, a nice rating because it really helps. And do join us next time. For now, goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.